It's really a great pleasure to be here in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Uh, certainly, it's my first time on the Christendom campus, and it doesn't take long for a visitor to be impressed by the spirit of this place, which is so positive, so warm, so welcoming. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here. I'm also honored to have been asked uh, to contribute to Principles, the Christendom College uh, publication. And I'd like to thank um, the editors of that uh, publication for that opportunity. And of course, it's an honor to be here this evening. Now, this whole Southerner thing, now that's an interesting <laughs> angle. Uh, it is true that Baltimore is south of the Mason-Dixon line, and this can raise suspicions in the eyes of some. And uh, I, was, uh, I applied for membership to a club in New York that was founded by Union supporters uh, to, to support the Union cause in 1860. And they, you know, they interview potential new members to make sure that they're the right kind of people, if you know what I mean. And, and the, guy, uh, the guy said, did you have any ancestors that fought in the Civil War? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, which side? And I said, the right side. <laughs> well, tonight I want to talk about Christianity in the public square or Christianity in public life. You know, one of the biggest changes in my lifetime, I was born in 1959, one of the biggest changes in my lifetime has been the recession of Christianity from the public square. The relative marginalization of Christianity from public life. Now, public life is more than just politics. Public life really refers to this larger public culture it's our common vocabulary. It's our shared educational experience. It's our general stock of ideas. It's our shared moral and political imagination. And when I was growing up, Christianity and the Bible still provided a great deal of what fired the public imagination. So when I was a child, uh, a small child, um, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And it was a speech suffused with biblical uh, quotations, images, and sentiments, married in his own, uh, in his own uh, unique way with the Founding Fathers, uh, uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and other artifacts of our national piety. And so I think that was characteristic of the world that I was born into, is that Christian piety and certain patriotic piety tended to blend together. And uh, in public debate or in public oratory, the Christian dimension would often come into play along with other dimensions in public life. My parents read Reinhold Niebuhr uh, on the shelves when I grew up with Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so educated members of American society looked to theology, typically a kind of liberal mainline Protestant theology, but nonetheless to theology for some orientation with respect to the pressing questions of the day. And it was also a period when Catholicism 
uh, had a very robust public uh, presence. John Courtney Murray's book, uh, We Hold These Truths, which was widely read and widely cited. Jacques Maritain, who exercised such an influence over the UN Declaration on Human Rights in the aftermath of uh, World War II. And so the, we lived in a culture in, in which Christianity had, a, in other words, there were problems with that, right? When things go, come together and fuse together, often the national project can co-opt the Christian project. That's always a danger. But nevertheless, there was this intertwining of the Christian project and the national project. And I give as an example my own educational experience. I went to a small liberal arts college uh, on Philadelphia's fashionable main line. That's a, that's a stock phrase, sorry about that. Uh, so if you're not from Philadelphia, you don't, you don't, you don't laugh. Um, but uh, and in the, at that college, which was a largely secular, was, was a secular school, it had a Quaker background, but it was largely secular school. Nevertheless, I was able to take religion classes where we read, was, it was effectively a class in Protestant theology. And I read Paul Tillich and Soren Kierkegaard and Friedrich Schleiermacher and Ernst Trelch, and most decisively all for my own personal faith, I read Karl Barth. Today, things have changed. And today, you know, if you don't go to a place like Christendom College, it is really impossible for you to, uh, to be able to take a class in, in theology at, at secular institutions. I met with a young lady who was a Presbyterian, and she had just graduated from Columbia University. And I, it was a sort of tragic, uh, she had a, I mean, I, 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 my heart went out to her because she had hoped that in university she could actually study things that would be related to her own faith. And it turned out to be very, very difficult to find classes that had any sympathy or any connection even, much less sympathy, to her Christian faith. And she wound up majoring in history and doing, studying medieval history, where often the faculty are actually, it's kind of hard to be a medieval historian without talking about theology. Uh, but still, she had to work really hard to find, in that big university, uh, to find a place, a small place, where Christianity matters. And compare the Black Lives Matter movement to uh, Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. There's really no biblical element, if you go to the Black Lives Matter website, there's no biblical element to the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, the well-educated look to psychology, brain science, and social biology for how, guidance about how to live well or how to be a responsible citizen. Uh, it's Malcolm Gladwell, not Reinhold Niebuhr, who is the, uh, the guide of our time. This really was driven home to me by the fact um, that I was just becoming, I was, I was aware that in the Wall Street Journal has a weekend section, the weekend review section. And the review section is meant to step back from current events and give readers orientation, broad orientation to the deeper issues of our time. And the main columns in that section of the magazine are on brain science 
and evolutionary biology and social psychology. And it's very interesting how our educated class today does not look to any dimension of religion for orientation. And in fact, something like the Wall Street Journal has an annual Thanksgiving editorial, which, is, which does draw upon religious themes and theological uh, themes. But the editorial gets republished every year, the same one, and was written in the mid-1960s. And so I think it's a, an awareness on the part of the editorial staff that they can't actually write something like that anymore, uh, either because they don't have the knowledge to do so or it doesn't really reflect how they view the world. Um, so things have changed. Things have changed a lot in the relation of Christianity to public life. I think we all feel it. We all feel the increasing marginalization, the being shunted to the side. Um, and and uh, evangelical Protestants feel it more acutely than Catholics do because evangelical Protestants have a much deeper investment in America as a Christian nation than Catholicism does. The Catholic Church, we have a city, uh, we have a polis, we have a, we have a community, it's called the church, it has its own inner life, it has its own laws, it has its own governor, um, and uh, whereas Protestants have a much thinner view of the church and it makes them more vulnerable to the transformations of American society. I feel that when I travel and speak to Protestant groups. So I want to think about this. Why this change? That's really the theme that I want to speak to this evening. Why the change? Why have things changed so much in the last, well, I'm 56 years old, so let's call it the last 50 years. Why have things changed so much? And I want to talk here now in two modes. I'm going to speak sociologically for a fairly extended period of time. Don't worry, not too long. Uh, and then at the end, I want to speak more speculatively about what I think are the inner dynamics of our age, the inner spiritual dynamics of our age. So the change. Clearly, if you look at data, one of the most glaring changes has been the increase of the number of percent of the population that considers itself to have no religious affiliation. These are the so-called nuns, not because they, were, they wear religious habits, but because they check the box none when asked what their religious affiliation is. So the nuns. In 1957, the federal government started doing a general survey of the population. And at that time, 3% of the population checked the nun box. It, by the time we get to 2008, the same general survey is being done, and 20% of the population checks the nun box. More recent data suggests that the percent of nuns has, is, is now creeping above 20%, and something like 30% of millennials consider themselves to have no religious affiliation. So this is obviously a huge, this is the single biggest change in the religious composition of American society over the last 50 years. It's, uh, and it is not matched by a corresponding decline in church going. So church going has not declined in the last 50 years. Um, since the 1950s, the same study shows that, and this has been constant for the last 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, that 25 to 35 percent of the population goes to church on any given Sunday. And I asked one of my friends, 
Chris Smith, who's the sociologist of religion at uh, Notre Dame. I said, Chris, what do you think it was like in 1900? And he said it's probably been 25% of the population for at least 100 years that it's been going to church on any given Sunday. Um, so what's changed has not been a decline in church going. That has not occurred. But instead, an increase of the number of people who are alienated from Christianity, or at least have no interest in Christianity, or don't regard Christianity as somehow integral or important to their own futures. Uh, and so you can see how this is going to affect the society as a whole. Before, when only 3% of the people considered themselves nuns, they said, although they did not go to church, they considered themselves to be Methodist, or they considered themselves to be Baptist. Actually, Catholicism is one of the, one of the uh, forms of Christianity in America that still tends to hold, to have a grip on people's imaginations. And so there are many, many Catholics who are very angry about the church. They don't go to church. They think the church is on the wrong, uh, uh, has a wrong view of any number of moral issues, but they nevertheless insist that they are Catholics. So they call themselves Catholics. They identify as Catholics. Uh, we can talk about that in the Q&A, but I don't think that's a bad thing, to be honest with you. I'd rather live in a society where full of people who are either hypocritical or rebellious Christians rather than post-Christians. So this growing demographic of nuns is frustrated with Christianity's influence on public life. Whereas they're developing a kind of post-Christian view of the world, and they're frustrated that they've inherited a public culture that has been so saturated by Christian influence over the, the more than two centuries of our nation's existence. And so they're, they're, they're pushing it away. They're, they're pushing it to the side. Um, and it's, it, it's, but this is about more than um, demographics, it seems to me, because any group needs leadership. Just as we need leadership, we need young people like you to go out and be leavens in the parishes where you're going to attend when, when you get older. We need, we need leaven, we need intellectual leadership, we need spiritual leadership in the church for the church to really be uh, an energetic force in society. So also the nuns need leadership. Just this 20%, 25% of the population having no religious affiliation in and of itself does not, it could create a cultural change, but it's not going to lead to the same collision that we're experiencing in our society. So this leads me to a second sociological observation, which is that there is a leadership class among the nuns. And this leadership class are what I call the post-Protestant wasps. Now, a wasp is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And when I was young, this term was used, it was kind of developed after the war, after World War II, to describe this elite class that tended to, if not be in all positions of power, that's absurd, but to control the sort of tone of society, to set the tone for society. And now, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was always an exaggeration. You know, Andrew Carnegie was, neither, was not an Anglo-Saxon. He, he was Scottish in, in descent. And Roosevelt is not an Anglo-Saxon name. It's a Dutch name. But really, WASP meant people from an elite background who are Protestants of Northern European descent. And that this was a social class in the United States 
that exercise a, a great deal of influence. In fact, I would submit that the crisis of the Great Depression and then World War II actually reinforced a kind of narrow, the narrowness of this elite status of longer than it would have otherwise lasted. And so already by the 1950s and 60s, it had a very artificial character to it. But in any event, the crises of the 1960s posed a, dr a dramatic challenge to the legitimacy of our WASP ruling class. And the reaction to that challenge was to uh, embrace diversity and to shift away from an elite that is defined by um, uh, ethnic descent and shift it towards one that's defined by merit. And so we have today what we think of as a multicultural meritocracy that has replaced the WASP uh, elite. Now, I used to believe that that was true, but I've become more and more suspicious of this particular claim, partly because it's so self-serving. And I think about it, and it is true that Baltimore is south of the Mason-Dixon line. And when I was growing up as, um, as a member of this WASP culture, I knew that the sons of Baltimore gentry were often choosing to go to University of Virginia rather than Princeton University. Those were the two schools, if you went to Gilman High School, which was the most prestigious high school in, in, in Baltimore. Those were the two most desirable places for a kind of Baltimore gentry to send their young men. And some of them wanted, would rather be at University of Virginia than at Princeton. It's really unimaginable today that, uh, that, the, that, that ambitious young uh, aspiring members of the elite won't choose the Ivy League school over any other option. So I look at what, actually what's going on out there and these old WASP schools are more powerful now than they were when I was a child, more powerful than when I was a teenager. So something has happened. And moreover, these institutions represent a distinctive culture that has its own kind of theology. And what we call political correctness is a derisive term to describe uh, this theology. But it could also be, uh, again, going back to the um, review section of the Wall Street Journal, social psychology, evolutionary biology, and brain science. There's a way in which you know, this, if you read the Atlantic, uh, and you, in the Atlantic you get a kind of window, or the New Yorker, you get a window onto uh, the, the, many, the many theologies of this distinctive elite culture which is being transmitted through these institutions that were once thought to be bastions of WASP elitism. Uh, and the notion that they're less elite today is really very absurd. Um, and so I formulate this notion of the post-Protestant WASP. So no longer Protestant and no longer white, no longer Anglo-Saxon as it was before, but nevertheless in continuity with this same culture. And I think, for instance, that uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, is a post-Protestant WASP. I mean, I think clearly she embodies a certain kind of Methodist moralism uh, the kind of social gospel movement that was so influential in the first half of the 20th century, now transmitted through her, but shorn of its explicitly Christian character, that I think that this is very much 
uh, Wellesley College circa 1969 when she graduated, Yale Law School in the early 1970s. And this culture has reproduced itself in very effectively. Um, I think Barack Obama's White House is dominated by post-Protestant wasps. In fact, I think Barack Obama is the paradigm of the post-Protestant wasp. Um, he's got the hauteur of the old wasp culture. He's got the sense of entitlement and conviction that his view of the world is right and just. And anybody who challenges it, challenges it is a, a, an outsider and a crank. I mean, this is, this is a kind of mentality that I'm very familiar with, uh, uh, having grown up as an Episcopalian. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, when I was growing up, you know, the, I can't remember the joke about the, uh, the table settings, but, uh, you know, there's a kind of etiquette about not knowing which fork to use uh, when there are four of them all lined up, uh, uh, and there's one on the top and three on the side and all that sort of thing. And we know that at, and this is no longer relevant to the post-Protestant wasp culture. Instead, it's a very elaborate eti etiquette about what pronouns you're supposed to use and what terms you're supposed to use uh, in these very minute and fine distinctions about gender and, and all these sorts of things. And that you're socialized into a world where you have an etiquette just as refined and just as um, recondite and just as inaccessible to ordinary people as the old wasp culture had. <laughs> So sociologists do not acknowledge the existence of a cultural category known as the post-Protestant wasps. You know, and the, the reason is simple. It's, it's part of the ideology of our ruling class, that it does not exist as a ruling class, uh, but is instead just an inclusive meritocracy. Um, that's beginning to, in our current political climate, that conceit is beginning to wear thin um, and, and, and uh, people are beginning to realize, whoa, um, it really is a ruling class. Um, but sociologists have begun to study the nuns as a distinctive group. And so by looking at the nuns, I think we can get a view of, because I think that they, they're shaped under the leadership of the post-Protestant wasps. I think we can look at the nuns and we can get a sense of what post-Protestant wasp culture is really all, all about. So the nuns, the people of no religious affiliation, 2012 Pew survey. 73% support legalized abortion as compared to 53% of the population. 73% in 2012 before Obergefell supported gay marriage as opposed to 48% of the general population. Doctor-assisted suicide, surrogate motherhood, legalized drugs. I don't have any data at hand, but it's not hard to guess what the, the views are on those topics as well. Robert Putnam and David Campbell, two sociologists, did a study in 2010 um, of religious attitudes in the United States. It's a very good study. And they were very clever because you ask people about their religious, their religiosity and, um, oh yes, I'm a Catholic or yes, I'm you know, Jewish or whatever. Um, but you don't know the intensity. Like how real is it for them? How important is it for them? And Putnam is very smart. And so he came up with a question. Do you say grace before meals? Always, sometimes, never. Now that's a pretty good proxy for religious intensity because you have to do something, right? Okay, so people who always say grace before meals, which, uh, which party do you think they identify with? Ah, 
the Republican Party, 50% of people who say grace before meals identify as Republicans, 40% as Democrats, 10% as independents. That fits with the narrative. Religiously conservative people are conservative politically and are tending towards the Republican Party. Ah, but people who never say grace before meals, they are far more intense in their partisanship. 70% of the people who never say grace before meals identify as Democrats. So if you look at the data from the 2012 election, 75% of nuns voted for Barack Obama. So in the Democratic Party, uh, the nuns have become a very, very important constituency in the Democratic Party, very loyal part of the Democratic Party's base. And in fact, a lot of the culture war is now being driven by the need to motivate this base. And so the war on women rhetoric from 2012 was uh, directed towards motivating, I think, motivating nuns to go to the polls because if they didn't vote, uh, uh, then um, we, you know, we would be back to the 1950s. That's always the great bugbear. We're going to go back to the 1950s. Or, now we have uh, a rhetoric I wrote about in the magazine, uh, uh, a race, I mean, a bigot-baiting rhetoric designed to motivate uh, the base of the Democratic Party. So in sum, the post-Protestant wasps provide leadership to a very large and growing cohort that is defined by religion. It's funny the way religion remains at the center of American public life, except here, this religious group, this group is defined by its rejection of religion, I think. Um, and so this strikes me as what is why Christianity has had, has, has so much less of a role in public life. It's in competition with an alternative vision of the future of our society, one that sees religion as actually being in the way. And in America, religion means Christianity because uh, it's, it's the 900-pound um, gorilla in the religious, uh, on the religious side of things. It's, 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 it's a growing cohort that is anti-religious because we're in the way. We're in the way of a future that they seek. We're in the way of abortion on demand. You know, we're in the way of doctor-assisted suicide. We're in the way of radical reproductive technology. We're in the way of ever-expanding gay rights. Um, we're in the way of a lot of things that powerful people want. And so we're being pushed out of the way. And it's not just uh, the power, power and the powerful people have foot soldiers that they can motivate. There was a time when there was something called the religious right that exercised a powerful force in American society in the 70s and 80s. And now there's a kind of anti-religious left that is becoming more and more influential in our society. And it's all wrapped up in some ways with the sexual revolution, I think. Think about it, abortion, doctor-assisted suicide, reproductive technology, and then the kind of sexual liberation. It's all tied up with the sexual revolution which is really a revolution against nature. And it's a rejection of the notion that our created, embodied existence has an intrinsic moral meaning. So that when I, I think that, and it's not just Christianity, but I think uh, um, you could be an Aristotelian, a pagan Aristotelian, 
and you're still going to be in the way. Uh, um, you could be a, well, maybe not a Neoplatonist. Neoplatonists are kind of problematic. But uh, <laughs> this notion of a rebel revolution against uh, nature is, I think, really at the root of the post-Protestant wasp uh, vision of the future. And we're in the way. And this collision between the two is really a defining. It used to be that Christianity provided something of uh, an umbrella under which we fought politically. You know, whether you were kind of a pro-market guy or you were a pro-labor union guy back in the 50s. And you fought under an umbrella, a kind of moral, imaginative umbrella or a sacred canopy above that was largely shaped by Christianity. Now Christianity is no longer the canopy above, but it's actually an, uh, a constituent or uh, a protagonist in increasingly uh, uh, bitter political struggles at odds with this, this post-religious vision of the future. All right. I don't want to end here, though. I don't want to end just with a description of our situation. If you'll indulge me, I want to kind of switch gears and engage in speculation, a speculative, uh, a speculative digression or a speculative, um, uh, I want to muse a little bit about what's going on at a deeper level. So what is going on? What is going on with the post-Protestant wasps? You know, one of the things that's important, uh, one of the things that's important to recognize is that um, that that uh, there's a vision, there's a vision of human life that inspires or at least unifies uh, the post-Protestant wasp. It's a it's, it is a kind of a moral mission. Like I say, I think Hillary Clinton captures that. That it's not a cynical. I mean, all politicians are at some level cynical, but there's a kind of moral mission underneath of it. And I think I want to get to that. Why? Why, and also, I wanted to ask, why is it that the post-Protestant wasps and their, their base, the nuns, why do they have the momentum? Why do they have the momentum in this moment? Because I think we all feel it. Uh, they have the momentum. They have the momentum in these political battles. We're always playing defense now, it seems. And, uh, and that, and that, and that this, this, is, this can be... Um, this can be very demoralizing. So it's important, I think, to speculate, why did they have the momentum? So here, here's my, it's a little sketchy here, uh, and I want to apologize if it's a little too sketchy. So I'll be more, I'll, I'll, I won't argue, I'll assert. Isn't that what professors, broken down professors do anyway? Um, I'm a recovering academic, uh, I tell people. That's why I've already been talking for 30 minutes. Uh, so the post-war decades, I think we're in a historical, we've been through a long historical season uh, that started in 1945. And at that period, the post-war period, it's funny, you know, when I'm looking out the sea of faces of young people, when you say post-war, they look at you like, which war? <laughs> but for someone my age, post-war was clearly the war, and the war was World War II. The great civilizational crisis of the West was from 1914 to 1945. And in the aftermath of this civilizational crisis, uh, the project of Western culture has been to weaken, to weaken things, to make things weaker. 
And so we have been through a 70-year period of weakening. So what the cultural project of the West has been since 1945 is to drive the strong gods out of public life, to drive the strong gods out of our civic culture. And uh, this is for obvious reasons. I mean, whether it's blood and soil, whether it's a dictatorship of the pro proletariat, these strong gods uh, were very bloodthirsty gods. And in the aftermath of the war, especially among Europeans, less so among Americans, it was, seemed obvious that the way forward had to involve weakening uh, these gods and demoting them, uh, and in some cases, driving them out. And this really took off in the 1960s. And it included lifting the burdens of civilization itself from our, off of our shoulders. So they had a momentum to it, this, this, uh, this weakening of the gods of nationalism or the gods of ideology had a momentum. And in the 1960s, it was picked up as a, as a larger project even still to free the human person from the burdens of civilization. And so one of the great paradoxical slogans of 1960, Paris 1968 is this one. It is forbidden to forbid. So this kind of paradoxical statement expresses this ultimate weakening, right? In other words, it is imperative to weaken things, to weaken authorities, to weaken uh, truth, to weaken um, the claims of nature, uh, because it is forbidden to forbid. That's a way of, that's a strategy of weakening. And of course, uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger's formulation, the dictatorship of relativism, is a description of this regime of weakening. Uh, it is not permitted to make strong claims. You must only make weak claims, uh, era of weakening. And one of the most important methods of weakening in the intellectual world has been critique and unmasking. I spoke about this in the piece that I wrote for Principles uh, and, and, and the, 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 the role of critique as, a, as the signature pedagogy of today's intellectual culture. It's a critique and unmasking. We are taught to look for truth underneath things, it seems to me. We're always trying to look below, uh, not above. And our thinking as a result in the West, in this, in this era of weakening, has always been to go down. We're always going down and never up. Um, and obviously, you know, you get postmodern thinkers, uh, which, which I hope that, well, I mean, I hope to a great extent you're spared them here at Christendom uh, College. But the notion that at root it's a desire for power or that at, the, at base really it's all about sex or, um, or the notion that, uh, um, you know, that our problems reflect, you know, Freudian repressed sexuality or in the case of Marx that it's material interests that are driving history. Those are all looking down. They're always, they're looking, they're going down to find the truth. Uh, so the world is always obscure and uncertain to us. And we have to, we have to try to, we have to try to reflect on things to get to the, to get to what's really real about them. And we live in the era of weakening where we're always going down to get to the real reality. Um, and I think it's, um, but it's also pervasive not just in 
fashionable French philosophy, but also it's very pervasive in the way that we think, mainstream thinking in America today. Economics is really the queen of the sciences in public life, uh, not just in America, but throughout the West. Um, and it always seeks truth below in the interplay of self-interest, which is the, really the dri what drives the, drives the train. And so, uh, and so we have the weak gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. Um, so no society lives without gods. Uh, our gods are the small, smiling hearth gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. They're the, they're, they're the, they're the, they're the base gods. Um, they're, not, they're not the high gods. Um, they're the gods that are below, not the gods that are above. I went to uh, a, uh, a couple years ago, I was invited to participate in a conference on James Burnham's decline, uh, Suicide of the West, a book written in the mid-1960s. And it's really a book that you could say that the book is really an American conservative's version of what John Paul II uh, identified as an anthropological heresy at the root of um, communism. It's false view of the human person, that it, it's, it's reduction of the human person to the lower base things, the material uh, things. And Burnham's argument that actually no human beings were made for freedom and not, and, and not uh, to be servile. Um, but it's interesting, I went to the conference and I read the book. It's a very flawed book in many ways. One of the big mistakes he makes is to treat communism as not part of the West. Uh, when the greatest force for westernizing the globe has been communism, uh, whether it's Russia or China, it has had a very powerful, certainly in China, westerniz westernization of the moral imagination of the Chinese came through communism. It destroyed, uh, largely destroyed Confucianism and other traditional forms of life there. Um, but in any event, uh, what, I, what, I, what I was struck by at this meeting was how quickly the conversation went to questions of utility. Which policies are really going to work to promote growth? Which policies are really going to work to uh, organize our healthcare system? And so it really was not a question about how we should live, what is the sort of the metaphysical truth about the human person. Instead, it was an argument about who has the best policies to maximize utility, who has the best policies to serve the hearth gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. Down, everything is downward moving in, uh, in, our, in our public culture. And obviously, Catholic public witness always runs counter. It's always going to be the odd man out in an era of weakening. Natural law makes strong claims. And God, of course, has plenary authority. So in the era of weakening, so it's important to recognize the way in which we we're, we're kind of doomed in the era of weakening to always be um, the object to be attacked, right? Uh, because you know, Catholicism becomes the paradigm because of our metaphysical tradition, our tradition of natural law, to say nothing of our, um, of our liturgical traditions, all of which make very strong claims about, about the power of that which is real, uh, and that which is real naturally, and that which is real supernaturally. So the culture war of our time is not just moral, but it's also political. Uh, and Pope Benedict saw this quite clearly, I think. It's moral and political, yes, but it's also metaphysical. 
Uh, and, you know, Plato uh, recognized that we have to sort things out, that we're often deceived, and that we mistake the shadows on the wall for reality. But he, but he also uh, observed, and it's the logic of, I think, our own tradition, that, um, that we, we, we remedy our disorientation by contemplative ascent rather than going down. And of course, the, uh, the Christian tradition adds the proposition that God himself comes down to aid us in this ascent, that God comes down to aid us in this ascent. And we live in an era, the post-war era, that urges the opposite. Um, and asking us always to um, clarify the reality of our situation by shed shedding the illusions of nobility and recognizing that we are clever animals who maximize our utility as best we can. There's an inevitable collision. Again, John Paul II, I think, uh, uh, saw that in his own uh, distinction, uh, his own observations about uh, anthropology. But I want to conclude not just by orienting us metaphysically, but to suggest that we should look to the future recognizing that perhaps this era of weakening is coming to an end. Uh, it may be. Um, it's my reading of the signs of the times, and I'll conclude with that. There's a dissatisfaction with the leadership of the post-Protestant wasps. It seems to be rising um, in our country. I mean, Trump voters are the obvious example of people who are dissatisfied with uh, the empire of utility. It doesn't seem to be working for them. And these are certainly not moral majority types, uh, but they seem to want something solid. Uh, so we have a kind of resurgent nationalism, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, maybe even more powerfully in Europe. And nationalism is a, it reflects a desire for something strong. It reflects a desire for the return of the strong gods um, and a dissatisfaction with the weak gods. And also, strange things are happening now in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. A recent study shows that millennials have fewer sexual partners than baby boomers or Gen Xers. It's a very odd sort of, you know, the sexual revolution promises to bring us the gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. And obviously the sexual revolution wants to serve the pleasure god, and it doesn't seem to be delivering on its promise. It offers the wealth god, but it doesn't seem to be delivering on its promise uh, to many Americans. And it offers the, wealth, uh, the health god, and we have declining life expectancies among working class white Americans. It's not delivering there either. Now all of this I think is very difficult to interpret, but it seems to me that these are, sign, these are signs of a rising desire for something solid, something permanent, something trustworthy. So it seems that people want the strong gods to return, and nationalism is a fairly obvious instance of that. They want a place to stand. In some ways they want to be enchanted, uh, and it seems to me that as we move forward, our job is to encourage this desire for re-enchantment, recognizing its dangers, which of course is a danger of idolatry, which is going to, I think, be the great threat uh, of your generation, is not the dictatorship of relativism. I think it's uh, your generation, young, young people are going to face 
of return of the strong gods. And I think we need to, we need to prepare for that. We need to encourage the restoration of things that have genuine nobility. And they are family, community, and also a proper patriotic love of country, but always, most importantly, oriented towards a supernatural love of God. It strikes me that a renewal of a religious, a vibrant religious culture is going to be very important for us to be able to purify and correct and limit this, um, this desire for a return of strength uh, to public life. Well, thank you very much, and I'd be happy to entertain a couple questions. Uh-oh, we got a professor asking a question. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. I'm a recovering academic, so. Well, thank you, Dr. Rina. That was a wonderful talk. I, I wanted to ask you about um, the role of education in addressing the whole complex of problems that you described. Because it, it seems like it, it, there's three ways you could go. You could either go in a kind of Mortimer Adler route and say, we're going to educate the Demos or educate the plebs, because in democracy, that's kind of the functional equivalent of educating the philosopher king. Or you could say, we need to re-educate the oligarchs. Or we, we, we could. <laughs> educate the plebs and tell them to infiltrate the oligarchy. Um, or you can try to do all three. So, do you see a, like a hopeful or positive role for liberal education in remedying the whole crisis that you described? No, I, uh, that's a great question. I, I think I am a salt and light guy. I'm a leaven view of cultural change. So I am very pessimistic about the future of liberal education in most institutions of of lower education here in the United States. Um, uh, I just don't think, I think, I mean, we know statistically that people are not measuring the humanities now. Uh, it's dying of many self-inflicted wounds of political correctness and politicization. Um, faculty themselves do not love literature. Why would a student possibly want to devote his or her four years to the study of literature? So I'm very pessimistic about that. Uh, so I think the oligarchs are, to be quite honest, I think if I'm right if it were that the desire for strong gods is returning, then the oligarchs are in big trouble. Um, and we see that in our current election. I mean, Donald Trump is a buffoon, okay? Uh, now, I will probably vote for him. I mean, I signed a, I signed a, a thing, intellectuals in support of Donald Trump, uh, because, I, because I see I see the oligarchs as actually posing a greater danger. But it tells you something about our moment that a man of such towering vanity and such obvious flaws nevertheless can attract, may attract uh, enough votes to become elected president of the United States. That tells us that our leadership class no longer has the capacity to lead. And if we have a return of the strong gods, then it's going to be people who actually can speak about permanent things, who can speak to our pu the, the public in a responsible way, you know, in a grown-up adult way that's not crude and vulgar, but can actually speak to them in a way that they will be able to recognize, yes, this person wants what I want. Right now, our leadership class is telling Trump voters, you're idiots, 
you're bigots, you're racists, and you're fools. This is not a way to run a country. Uh, and, and I think, and I think, it, I think we've got to recognize if, if this is a return, we got you, young people in this room, studying these great texts is hugely important because you are able to uh, develop a vocabulary to talk about permanent things, deep things, things that are lasting and true. And some of you will be called to positions of public leadership, and you're not going to fall into the trap of, of the era of weakening, which is the solution to strong beliefs that are false is critique. No. I learned from St. Augustine, false loves are only reliably corrected by a true and higher love. He's the man of the hour. Yeah. Um, I was wondering whether or not you think that religious culture in the West, and especially in the United States, can withstand the resurgence of one of the strong gods, such as socialism, especially given that Bernie Sanders really resonates with the millennial generation? That's a, that's a good question. I don't, in my view, after 1989, capitalism became the only real option. So I do not think Sanders voters want socialism. Um, they want security. They want a solid place to stand. Uh, and when you have no father in the home and no father in heaven, then are you surprised that people turn to the government to be at least somebody who I can, will take care of me? Um, but I don't think that's a, an interest in socialism. I think the same Sanders voters will get very upset if they're denied the opportunity for, you know, their, you know to get a job at Google. Um, and make a lot of money. Um, so I think, so I interpret the Sanders voters, just as I interpret, I think, um, the Trump voters, who I think have an equally confused and probably uh, perverted nationalism in some instances, just like the Sanders voters have this confused, in some sense, perverted uh, expectations from the government. I interpret them as reflecting a deeper spiritual desire. Give me a solid place to stand. Give me something I can trust. Give me something I can be loyal to um, in an age that has taken all that away from us. One way I put it is this. I mean, you guys study Greek philosophy, right? Parmenides, right? Parmenides. Cling to that which is and cannot not be. That's what goddess justice whispers into Parmenides' ear. Cling to that which is and cannot not be. Heraclitus, what's his famous one-liner? <laughs> what kind of all is flux, Heraclitus? We've gone through the age of weakening is a Heraclitian age. It's reaching its end. People cannot live in flux all the time. They're asking for Parmenides. They want a Parmenidean <laughs> moment. Now, because we've been through all this, they only want a little bit of Parmenides, right? <laughs> like, they do not want anyone telling them that, that uh, there's such a thing as um, uh, natural law, certainly not with respect to sex. So they only just want a little Parmenides. But our job is to <laughs> blow on those little sparks and kind of work it and sort of say, especially as, you know, get them to see that, no, no, there's this, there's this permanence. There's a possibility here. Uh, available to you. So, 
That's my sense. Socialism, that's not my worry. Yeah. In fact, during the time of the Second World War, you had a face-off, a contest, put to the practical test. Freud died during the Second World War. Viktor Frankl, the third Viennese psychiatrist, was a Jewish prisoner in a number of concentration camps. Freud advocated what you were referring to as appealing to he goes down. down below, what drives us from below. Viktor Frankl was advocating the exact opposite, final causality. Man exists for purpose, for meaning, and he can't live without meaning. He can't live without something greater than himself for, for, for which he can act. And um, Viktor Frankl's point was during the Second World War in the Jewish concentration camps, the truth was borne out to him that Freud was wrong and that he was right. That's a so nature is on our side. Nature is on our side. That's a beautiful, thank you. I'll use that in my next time I give this talk. <laughs> uh, uh, because that's a perfect juxtaposition of the direction that we live in an age that follows Freud down, uh, even though we know in our hearts that Frankl is right. And so nobody lives a kind of metaphysically pure life, you know? And this is why we can make alliances with people who we often disagree with about a lot of fundamental matters, because people live, they live mixed lives. St. Augustine said that, you know, the distinction between the city of God and the city of man runs through each of us. Um, and so this is true, you know. Sin makes us, I mean, the, this, the church fathers, or St. Augustine, sin is man curved in upon himself, looking down. And uh, the church fathers has a beautiful image of the incarnation that God wants to get our attention. We're curved down. And so he goes down uh, into our line of sight, um, even lower than we ourselves are willing to go. Yeah. Who are going to be the strong gods of the nuns? <laughs> right. Well, maybe this young lady's right. Maybe it will be Jacobin magazine. I, I still don't think socialism has much traction. Um, but I, I think nationalism is going to be the strong god. That just, that's what all the data would suggest in terms of the way things are going in Europe. Um, and uh, now a lot of young people have a much more internationalist view than, than old fogies like me. Um, so I don't know uh, what, you get a lot of interesting things. There's uh, uh, ecstasy or there's a, the ecstatic. I think that you'll get a German artist who will, who will execute somebody on stage as an art project, who has volunteered to be executed. Um, and that's a kind of, that's a sort of moment of explosive strength, where, you know, like, the deep truths about the human condition are suddenly thrust upon you, death, um, but only for a moment, and without any me horizon of meaning for it. And I think that those sorts of things are likely to, um, to become increasingly significant um, images of, I think tattooing is a kind of uh, uh, desire for permanence. Piercing, the sort of disfiguration of the body is a, is a kind of reaching for permanence. You know, I, I'm going to do something to my body and stop it right here and make it permanent uh, so this moment lasts forever. So I, I'm not sure, but I think nationalism certainly uh, seems to be politically the biggest, <coughs> biggest issue out there. Yeah. You said that there would be multiple of strong 
Hong Kong, and he only mentioned nationalism as one of them. How, what other, what other strong dogs do we need to be aware of, and how do we sort of internally combat about them if they start to become an influence in our lives that is negative? Yeah, that's a that's, yeah. Well, I don't have the power of prophecy. Uh, I don't have the power of prophecy. Yes. If I could make a suggestion, it, uh, is that the other strong god is the evil one. Well, he he supervises the strong the gods. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, we, we may see it in some form. No, in the era of weakening, we got the idols of health, wealth, and pleasure because they're weak gods. And in the era of strengthening, the devil will, pro will provide us with the strong guys that we want, but they'll be perverted. And typically, it's, it is good to be, want to be healthy. Uh, and it is good to want to be able to have a good job, provide for your family, and, and it is good to enjoy the good things of life. So the devil always takes our things that, we, we, that, are, that are good and perverts them uh, by, by encouraging us an improper love of them. And so the same thing is true for these other idols, whether it's the nation. It'll take a fitting, proper patriotic love, which I think is a natural part of the human condition, and pervert it. Um, and so I don't know what other, uh, you know, we'll have ideologies. If we have a natural desire for truth, and we do enter into a strengthening, I'm trying to work with your question. And so it'll be ideology, it'll be uh, superstition. Um, these sorts of things where people know that they want, they, 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 they're tired of the dictatorship of relativism. They want strong truths, and then they wind up uh, latching on to, to these perverted kinds of half-truths. Yeah. Yes? My question would be basically the relation of modern secular society to Islam. Would Islam be kind of like the- That's a strong truth. Opposite of everything that these weak gods have made modern society, that's part of the reason it's so strong in Europe right now and all of this is happening with the Middle East. These guys are the, um, the opposite. And so the interplay between us is that Islam could well become the strong god of Europe and of the West because we have been so weakened that this is what's going to supplant us. Yeah, right, that's uh, Michel Ubeck's imaginary future for France in his novel, Submission. Um, clearly, Islam is driving the desire for strengthening in Europe, right? So in this era of weakening, faced with people who say, actually, no, there, we do have a strong God, um, who, are, who recognize that our public loyalties are only finally legitimated by a deeper loyalty, uh, is evoking out of Europeans uh, a kind of, uh, uh, they're awakening from their vacation from history. And they're asking themselves, what do we believe in? What is it that we, and that's why they're drifting towards nationalism. It's not, it's not Christianity that provides an alternative. And Pierre Manet, who I think is a very important figure here, French political philosopher, has made the argument that only a restoration of a strong Christian character to France can actually provide a place for Islam in France and that secular France has no place for Islam. It can only drive it out. Uh, and, and so I do think that Islam in Europe is a very clarifying, it's clarifying Europeans. That's driving their political situation right now. And it's not about immigration. I want to say 
It's really about feeling the pressure of a strong God and realizing that the strong gods uh, uh, really, they, they energize the soul. And they're confronting these people who are, are saying no to the, health, to the hearth gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. I mean, everybody says yes to them at some level, but no, I do not want that to rule my, the world for my children. I want my children's world to be ruled by a stronger God. And the Europeans are shocked by this, and they're saying, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe they're right about that. They just have the wrong God. Yeah. Yes. Um, what exactly do you mean by that, and why do you think that? Winston Churchill once said that hypocrisy is the complement that vice pays to virtue. <laughs> and so a hypocritical, even a rebellious Christians are essentially acknowledging Christianity's central role in shaping the spiritual moral fabric of our society. I mean, you're not rebellious unless you say, well, these are the people holding, holding the the fort, I'm going to rebel, um, where people who are hypocritical are only hypocritical as they feel they have to pay some outward obeisance. So, uh, so I, I, yeah, mm -hmm. follow up. Oh, I think it did. I think that it was hypocrisy and uh, that I mean, if only 25% of the population was going to church on any given Sunday in 1910, and people, and, and G.K. Chesterton came and said, America's a nation with the soul of a church, clearly that hypocrisy was empowering uh, the authentically religious people to set the moral tone. Uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, having a society of the pure is very unrealistic. Um, you know, so the question is, will, will the lump allow the leaven to do its work? Hypocrisy lets the, the lump get leavened. Even if they resist leavening themselves, they let, they let the lump of, uh, of dough le get leavened. Are you going to get my Right, right. I think, <laughs> right, right. I've been asked this before, you know. Uh, I think we need to. I think we need to look at what um, what politicians say they're going to do. We need to look at what what we think the politicians will actually do, and then we need to make prudential judgments about uh, the effect that that politician, no matter what they do will have on our, our, the social fabric of our nation. Uh, so, right, so principles are easy, right? Uh, you know, so pro, uh, Donald Trump says he's pro-life. Um, do I think he's gonna act on this in the appointment of judges? Uh, maybe, maybe. A um, uh, little hazier there. Um, but it, the overall effect of the election of Donald Trump 
would be very disruptive of our political establishment. It would be very disruptive of our political establishment. I happen to think, right, that, uh, you know, if, we're, if the era of weakening is ending, if our elite are so heavily socialized into the strategies of weakening, they will be unable to respond to what the public really wants. So we need to, we need to break this logjam sooner rather than later. And so for Donald Trump is my bludgeon, right, to break, to break, to break the logjam. He's my dynamite to break the logjam. So I, like I said, he may say something in the next few weeks that make it impossible for me to vote for him. Uh, who knows what he'll say? Uh, but at this point, um, that becomes my, so I'm, I'm trying to think, as a, as a citizen of this, of this country, worried about its future, concerned that we need to, we need to put the fear of God into our, the post-Protestant wasps in order to get them to adjust to new social realities, then, you know, he's a very effective way to send a message. Dangerous, though, and I, I, I gotta say, that's my political judgment, and I have friends who think I'm out of his mind, I'm out of my mind, he could do a lot of damage, and I have a lot of respect for their, for their judgment there. It's a very volatile political moment. This is a very difficult time. It's a sign of how deep the changes are happening as we speak in the West, uh, in Western culture, that we are faced with an election with two uniquely unpopular candidates in a political context that is really surreal. I mean, you, I, I watched that debate, and I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, both of them. She's appealing to experts, and he's blustering away, and I thought, well, and we can all rebel against that and say, but we, are, we, we have to live. It's 2016, we gotta live in the moment we live in, and we have to try to navigate and figure out what it is that uh, what, what, what our political duty is. And like I say, I don't gainsay people drawing a very different conclusion than I do. And it's based on what I'm trying to say tonight about the end of the era of weakening and the coming era of strength, strengthening, and my fears about that coming era. Yes? Um, Right, so your point is, is that uh, hypocritical Christians discredit us. Um, yeah, uh, but they're not contesting with us for the future of our society. Um, and I think that I'm worried about, that's what I'm worried about. You know, there's a kind of contest. Are we, gonna, are we going to realize, the, are, is the future gonna be a more animal-like existence or is it gonna be a more noble existence? And the hypocritical people are sort of saying, I'm too busy just living my life, you know, 
I, you know, I'm going to go off and worship the health, hearth gods of health, wealth, and hedonism, but you take care of, you know, the values. I say, oh, I'd rather have that than somebody saying, no, you're looking up, you should be looking down. Yes? Thank you for your talk. Um, you mentioned uh, tangentially the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. And there's been a lot of violence in the news lately, uh, police violence, uh, protesters, terrorists. Um, I was wondering what you think all this says about the strong God movement toward and how you think we as Catholics of different races can work to improve relations between many different kinds of people. One of the, I think one of the reasons why the post-Protestant WASP culture is being, why there's an anti-establishment rebellion is that one of the promises of multiculturalism is that it's going to create harmony. Um, and it doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, I, people, the, what unifies people is I think, well, we don't need diversity, we need civic friendship, right? And friends are united in a common love. And so we need to identify things that we want to seek together. And obviously the most powerful is to seek God. And so a common love of God is in the church. The church is a tremendously powerful source of unity, which is why you can get a Nigerian priest celebrating mass in Front Royal, Virginia, uh, in a congregation that, is, um, that, that, that's, that sees in itself unified with this strange black man from halfway around the world. Other, there are other ways, though. There are other common loves. It could be, you know, it could be, you know, uh, having better schools. It could be working to um, uh, uh, clean up the parks. So I, it's my sense is that uh, that racial and ethnic unity stems from shoulder to shoulder towards a common end, rather than face to face in this sort of elaborate kabuki dance of identity politics. And the, uh, the, that's not to say you shouldn't be sensitive and aware and all that kind of stuff, but that kabuki dance actually exhausts people and breeds resentment. And we see this, um, I think, uh, increasingly, not just with Black Lives Matter, but on many college campuses. Yes? One last question for you, Robert. Yes. <laughs> Make it a good one. Well, I, I, right, I think, yeah, what would happen? We would, we would, uh, the, the, the dam would be propped up uh, more, you know, the beavers would work harder and harder and harder. Um, the central bankers would be pulling on their levers with ever more urgency. Uh, the multicultural therapists would be uh, propagating to try to make us more unified, even though they can't do it. Th that's the beavers that are putting their sticks on the dam, and the water would continue to rise in the dam. So that would be a, that would be, the effect of her election would be to, to what I think is to delay. Um, and now sometimes political prudence is to delay. You know, so again, I don't dismiss people who say that Donald Trump is just way too much of a risk. And so I'll take my, I'll, at least she's a known, She's a known bad, as opposed to an unknown bad. Um, but I, I think we'll get more of what we've gotten for the last eight years, um, pretty straightforwardly. I mean, maybe even more 
uh, with less sanctimony but more ruthlessness. Uh, yeah, he's, Obama's a very sanctimonious man, but I don't see him as, as being all that, all that ruthless. Um, and also, you know, one of my other concerns about her is that the Clinton Global Initiative is, is machine politics scaled up to an international size. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very, I don't like oligarchies. You know, I'm an American. <laughs> you know, my, my ancestors may have fought on the right side of the war, but we're, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm part of that larger American thing. I don't like having oligarchs run the world. Um, I kind of like, I'd kind of like to have representative government. Kind of, a, kind of a cool concept. So I, I, that's what my concern would be, about, would be about her. I don't see her as revolutionary, but more solidifying the current state of affairs and that feeling of being locked down all the more, concrete being poured into all of the rigid, already rigid dimensions of our society. Um, Can I just refine that just one bit? The effect on Christianity, since that's the topic of your, your talk, what would it, the effect be on Christians in the public square? No, I, I would say, look, I mean, that's why I tried to get at, I've, I've been struggling with this, right? And so I've got my thing about weakening, the era of weakening and the era of strengthening. And Hillary Clinton is a pure product of the era of weakening. She empowers people who believe that our problems are going to be solved as a society if we can weaken um, convictions, if we can weaken the, 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 the deep truths about the human condition. And that inevitably puts the Catholic Church in the bullseye. Uh, so yes, things get worse for us. <laughs>